So I thought you were going to put this as 39. Yeah, maybe you're right. I was thinking that we had one in the bag, but we don't yet because the one we were going to put in the bag didn't go in the bag. It's still sitting outside of the bag. Yeah, and you do have one in the bag. It's moon. Yes, it's in the bag, but it's not bag worthy. It's It's dated bag. You don't want to put the bag on the back burner. That's that's just burn the bag. (sighs) What are we talking about? (laughs) Having other buggers. Right, let's start this. So this will be... 39. Episode 39. Syzygy, episode 39, Ridiculously Large Telescopes. And welcome back to another edition of the Syzygy podcast. I'm not astronomer Chris and sitting opposite me is astronomer Emily. Hi, Emily. Hello, hello. So this week we're going to be talking about some news from a mountaintop in Chile. Big stuff happening over there, up on the, the, the mountains, way up off the plains, where it's desert, but on a mountaintop, which is always weird. Chile's a strange place. But there's interesting things happening over there. People have been digging over the earth to build something very big and something very special. Emily, what are we talking about? What's happening in Chile? Well, it's only the biggest telescope in the entire world that's going to oh be built there. Oh, my God. So, hang on. There are, there's already some pretty stonking telescopes in the mountains of Chile, but this is... An even bigger one, because the other ones weren't big enough? They're definitely not big enough. So I must put an asterisk, biggest optical and infrared telescope. Right. Okay. Of course, radio dishes come, come in hundreds of metres in size. Well, I mean, radio. <laughs> They're not even trying. But this is optical. This is optical. Okay, so wind this one back. What are we talking about? What's the news? Work our way into this one. So we've got GMT. Which GMT, is... Greenwich Mean Time. I know that one. No, 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 no not GMT. Because Greenwich, there's an observatory, and so they're moving the Greenwich Observatory to Chile. This is no, 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 no. We need to, we need to <sighs> roll this all the way back. Damn it, I thought I was on this one. Okay. No. GMT, Giant Magellan Telescope. Ah, okay. So the first thing that comes into my mind is, is there already a Magellan Telescope? Yes. Right. Okay. So this that was the average size. That's sort of the, the regular, you know, just waking up in the morning and having a having a small Magellan telescope. But then you get to work and you really, really feel like you need a bigger one. So you go and get your giant Magellan telescope. Yeah. Yeah. Is the Magellan telescope currently, is that in Chile? Uh, no. No. I can't recall off the top of my head where it is, actually. <sighs> you had one job. I know. <laughs> To give us the background on the Magellan. Well, I got too excited about the giant Magellan telescope. Let's not not get caught in the Magellan weeds here. We are building a bigger one than the one that currently exists. Do you know the the one that currently exists, the Magellan telescope? Is that what it's called? Or is it like the sort of generic Um, Magellan telescope? Is it? Well, I don't really know. Hang on. Look, I'm going to look (laughs) this up. Just edit this all out. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm not going to edit it out. I'm going to go and look it up. Yeah, no. Magellan telescope. Here we go. Jeez. No, no. Look, no. Look, okay, Wikipedia, Magellan Telescopes, pair of 6.5 metre diameter optical telescopes located at Las Campanas Observatory in Chile. Oh, okay. So it is at the same place then. Yeah. So there you are. So we tried not to tell you my lies. Yeah, but they're only 6.5 metres. So they're not giant. They're just your average six and a half metre telescopes. So they're already pretty good. They're all there. So giant. How how giant is giant if 6.5 metre isn't giant? I mean, 6.5 metre, that's the diameter of the mirror. That's right. Yeah? Yeah. That's, sorry, that's really big. Yeah, so if you think if you've got a telescope at home, it might be a few inches in if diameter. Lucky. yeah, right? yeah. Um, our biggest telescope on the Astro Campus is 16 inches. The 16 mirror. inches, not feet, not metres, yep. inches. The research telescope I use pretty regularly is a metre. 
yep. and diameter, and that's fairly small on yep. the international scale. But, I mean, that's professional-grade, proper research. Let's look at the skylines properly, not as a joke. Exactly, yeah. And that's one metre. That's one metre. And so these Magellans, just the ordinary common or garden variety Magellan telescope, is six and a half metres. Like, that's... That's bigger than the width of your office. And you've got a very large, luxurious office here at the University of York, Emily. But it's bigger than your office. That's big. That's big. So, question remains. How big is a giant Magellan telescope? It's going to be 24 and a half metres. Shut the front door. That's really, really big. It's <laughs> very, very, very big. That's, that's a single mirror? That is not a single mirror. It's going to be composed of seven primary mirrors. Right, but all with a combined area. Because once you get up to that size, I'm guessing it's pretty hard to get one big stonking 20... What is it? What did you say? 20... 24 and a half. 24 and a half metre mirror. That's stupidly big. You're starting to talk playing field size. So, you know, you can't do that in one go terribly easily. So you break it up. You break it up. And there's kind of two main ways that we do this. Um, we do it – so the current world's largest telescope is the South African Large Telescope, or SALT, and that's just over 11 metres in diameter. So we're talking about more than twice that size already. And is, is that one a single mirror or is it – It's up? not a single mirror. Right. Um, it is made up of hexagonal segments, which are about a metre in size. Right. So that's one way to do these giant mirrors is to do sort of hexagonal things that are about a metre. This is a kind of a new way that they're doing with the GMT. Instead of having hundreds of smaller mirrors, we're having seven incredibly large mirrors. These Each of these mirrors is about 8.4 metres across. Wow. So each of these alone is bigger than than the generic Magellan telescope. And we've got seven? Seven of, of them. them? Yeah. That's nuts. That's off the charts. So these are the biggest single mirrors that we are capable of manufacturing in the world. And one of them's not enough. Let's throw seven of them together and make a stonkingly huge. That's what it should have been, the stonkingly huge Magellan telescope. I'm going to write to them and suggest a name change. Because, I mean, this is the point, isn't it? It's not built yet. It's not, right. No. What's in the news then? So actually, this is kind of an update on progress, which is really, really exciting. We've been waiting for GMT for a very, very long time. And I hate to say we're going to be waiting for quite a long time more. But we have just finished the excavations a couple of months ago of all the groundworks that are on site. So that means they had to dig out some of the rocks and so on. At, this is at Las, Camp Las Campanas Observatory, um, LCO. In Chile, and there's a it's an existing observatory. There's a lot of telescopes already on site, so they chose kind of a, a knoll that's near to that part of the observatory. I mean, there's a bit of space up there on top of the mountains. It's quite a lot of space. It's quite, it's quite yeah. an empty, empty spot. But you've got to do some sort of foundation work, excavation. They've dug up a pole to to put in some of the um, uh, the stuff, which will eventually build up to become the stabilizers and things like that for the telescope. So that whole part, the digging up the ground part is finished right so the news part of this story is hey fantastic we've stopped digging and we're now building stuff yes which is cool but it does sort of give us a little catalyst to be able to talk about this amazing incredible telescope that's going to be able to do extraordinary things just in the little bit of reading that i did in my extensive preparation for this recording um which didn't involve looking up the original magellans either well no but you know who, who are you to talk thanks <laughs> emily who's the astronomer put up your hand if you're actually an astronomer thank you 
Um, yeah, so that's the news part, which is that, that, you know, it's actually being built now. When is it due to actually be switched on and, and used? Well, first Do you switch lights, on a telescope? I guess you must these days. Yeah, yeah, you definitely do. They have, it's called first light. It's a really yeah. important part for any telescope. The first light that hits the mirror, you know, from from the, the universe. I mean, it's, it's kind of a nice... But I'm just trying to figure out, like, how does that work? Is it, is it, does I, do they... Do they have a big sheet covering over it and they pull the sheet off and it's first light? Or do they do they have a big sort of roof over the top and they open that and that's first light? Or, or like what? Is someone standing in front of it and then steps out of the way? How do you like how <laughs> well, do you turn on the telescope? It's going to be really interesting. It'll be, it'll be cool to see what they do. But one of those things or something similar, I imagine. I'd like, I'd yeah, like to see the big uncovering. sheet. I'd like to be the big sheet. And then it's just, ta-da, and someone just whips the sheet away. And there it is. I think that'd be great. Yeah. Especially if someone had then sort of scrawled in lipstick or something. You know, done a big picture on the mirrors, I think that would be kind of cool. They're probably just going to turn it on and go, oh, why isn't that not working? Oh, why is that bit not working? Oh, yeah. so can someone get out and fix that bit, please? Yeah, oh. they'll, they'll turn it on for all the world's press and everything, and then they'll go away and go, oh, it's not working. Don't tell anyone. It's quick, quick, fix that. Plug that bit in. Yeah, yep. So, okay, we need to wind this one back. There's so, so many questions. Giant Magellan Telescope. Well, hang on. We, you started asking me a question. Did I? Yeah. What was when, it? When, it, when is first light? Oh, yeah. Did we not get to that? <laughs> we I thought got we too got excited to that. about the sheep. Oh, okay. All right, all right, all right. So when are they going to whip the sheep Well, off? first light is going to be 2026 approximately. Now, it's not going to be the entire telescope that's going to be operational at that point. All oh, right. There's only going to be four, maybe five mirrors on the telescope at that time. So there's going to be um, another three or four coming. There's going to be eight mirrors in total where they can sort of swap out one um, when they need to do uh, technical work on it. So re-polishing um, it and so they have a spare. Up. Yeah, basically. Yeah, but that that kind of implies that this is like this is non-trivial, right? You you kind of think, well, yeah, big mirrors, but I mean, how hard can they be? That's like six years away. Or more, seven years away. You can't make eight mirrors in seven years and get them over to, to mountaintop and install them in Chile? You can only do four? No. no. This well, is a very we're, we're difficult... We're hoping maybe four. Wow. So that'll probably and be three then. This is, I mean, this is a prog- process which is well underway. It's not like we just haven't gotten around to making these mirrors yet. Yeah. The first mirror was cast all the way back in 2005. Seriously? Holy cow. That's crazy. Yeah. That's, so... that's like almost 15 years ago. That's nuts. So the point is, that mirrors making these mirrors is hard. Yeah, <laughs> it apparently. takes a really, really long time. <laughs> apparently, wow. So is this is this program like behind schedule, or was it always going to be? You know what? Let's start building the mirrors now, and in twenty years we'll have a telescope. Was that always the plan, or was it harder than we thought? So, well, first of all, they had to make the uh, first mirror in two thousand and five and get it up to a standard that um, was acceptable for the telescope before they would even commission the rest of the mirrors. Wow. So basically the um, mirror makers who are a really um, fantastic group at the University of Arizona, the, um, the Stewart Observatory has a mirror lab and uh, that lab had to kind of build the first mirror. It's a proof of concept that we can do it, that it's going to be accurate enough to do the stuff that we want to do with GMT. And following on from that, then uh, the following mirrors were able to be commissioned. I just love the fact that that they're doing, you know, tests on a mirror. Let's, you know, proof of proof of principle on a mirror which by itself is the biggest mirror that we've got for a telescope. Like that's that's like just let's just get that one working. 
you know, let's, yeah. let's use that to have a look at the universe first. Yeah. So there's quite yeah. a few eight-metre-class telescopes around the world that have these single mirrors, and many of them were made at the Stuart yeah. Observatory as well. So yeah. it was just kind of could they get it to the, the next level, if you like, of precision, which is required if you're going to put in several mirrors yeah. together. Wow. Okay, so there's a lot of work to be done, hoping for sort of half of them to be done by 2026, and that would be sufficient to be able to then have the switching on, pulling away of the sheet kind of ceremony to, to have first light and say this is an operational telescope, even though there's a few more to still to come. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe 2028 for the full mirror right. set to be right. there. Fingers crossed. Okay. So this thing is made of, what did we say, seven stonkingly huge mirrors. I just, I mean, this is the only word that I can put on They're it. Huge. Really big to make one enormous mirror. The technology of those mirrors alone has to be off the charts. I mean, this is cutting edge stuff. So tell me about the mirrors. Yeah, I'm a super fan, by the way, of yeah. the Mirror Lab that makes these mirrors. They do incredible, incredible stuff. So, and I always, I talk about mirrors quite a lot when I'm teaching because I teach students astronomy. So I talk about mirrors and telescopes. I also teach first year students about optics, which is um, the optics of mirrors and how they work. And both of those, I can talk about these cutting edge mirrors. So I, I really am a huge follower of, of these mirrors being made. We have five that have been cast. One of them is finished. So the others are in a state of what? Construction and polishing? Yeah. So the, the thing is with these mirrors is that they have to be ultra precise. So these mirrors have to be precise to 20 nanometers. 20 nanometers. So when you say precise, you mean the shape is well defined. You need to have it, what, curved, presumably. Curved, yep. And it's got to be to that, you know, pre-ordered shape to within 20 nanometers which is not a lot <laughs> it's, it's a really small amount it's one millionth of a centimeter wow or to give you an idea of how hard this is these mirrors are spun out of glass mm -hmm. it's one glass molecule good god now when you say spun out of glass what do you mean so this is super exciting they they take 20 tons of glass mm -hmm. and they spend about a week heating it up melting mm -hmm. it and then they start to spin it so this is spin casting of mirrors, and this is why the Mirror Lab does such fantastic work um, from this technique. They um, spin it at six or seven times per minute when it's super hot. So this is more than 1,000 degrees, the glass at this point, molten. And uh, then they slowly cool it over the course of about three months. And as they cool it, they very, very slowly uh, decrease the rate at which it's spinning so that the mirror like, slowly sort of comes into a general... Um, shape, but it also spins out lots of air bubbles and things like that out of the glass. Amazing! I, I love the fact that in this in this modern age of you know we're we're so used to tiny computers with with incredibly fine microchip technology and, and stuff like that that we're still using you know glass and and polishing mirrors down to incredible shininess. There's something, I mean, I know that the technology behind that is extraordinary. I'm not putting it down in any way, shape or form. There's just something, I don't know, kind of sort of old school and romantic about that. Yeah, and I know it's not, yeah. I know it's not some dude sitting there with a polishing cloth. I know it's not that. But it's also not too far away from that. They've got to polish these things. They do have to polish them. With actual things. polishers. With polishers, with robot polishers, yeah. of course. Um, so the robots have diamond wheels that once the mirror is cooled and sort of uh, taken down, then they can um, start to polish it. And this is, the, this is the bit that takes time, right? Going from something that's just cooled 
into hardened glass. So it's been spun. It's got all the bubbles out of it. Yep. But then, then you've got to shine it. The polishing takes years. That's, that's what happens. So, And I'm guessing in a, an amazingly clean room environment. Oh, like yes. No dust is allowed in here. No, like, don't breathe. You can't. <laughs> and I mean, you, space getting, suits? I mean... I don't think it's quite so bad because you can sort of brush dust a little bit and that off the mirror. But what they're doing is they're taking um, finer and finer grinding um, equipment. So they start off with kind of quite coarse stuff, like coarse sandpaper, and then you go finer and finer and sandpaper. It's kind of the same sort of mm. stuff. And by the end, you've got lasers, which are helping you, helping the robot to measure exactly the shape of this. Well, it would have to be. And if you're getting down to one glass molecule's worth of, of accuracy, you, you've got to be using laser laser technology to be able to help you measure that yeah well just the technology to measure the shape of the mirror yeah. is, is fascinating because it's not it's not symmetrical and um, spherical symmetry so what that means is it's not the um, curvature is not the same on one side as on the other side because if you look at a picture of how this uh, telescope is going to be assembled each mirror has a particular position and it has to be a different shape on the bit that's furthest away from the center than it is from the bit that's closest to the center so it's not just one big you know, a uh, segment of a of a sphere. Hmm. It's a different shape. What parabolic? It's presumably? parabolic, yeah. Which means that the, yeah, the mirrors are not. They're not. These aren't just slicing off a bit of an orange here. This is a really difficult shape, and you've got to do that really carefully. Wow. And you see these pictures of these final mirrors, and the thing I love most about them is too. I mean, these aren't shiny in a sense. What do you mean? They're just glass. Well, the, all we're doing is making a giant glass blank. We don't put the shiny aluminium coating on it until it reaches the telescope. Oh, right. So, okay. So they're not mirrors yet. They're, they're not... windows. <laughs> well, um, yeah, they're kind of like big blanks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you describe it. So where, so these are being made in America? Yeah. So this is uh, the, the, the mirror lab is underneath a stadium in Arizona, which is... Of course it is. And yeah. wonderful in its own in its own way. They they built the mirror lab under the stadium to get power and to get a really big um, stable space as well. In fact, I heard a brilliant story about why these mirrors are eight point four meters, mm -hmm. because when they built um, the mirror lab and they built it underneath Arizona Stadium, they um, of course the stadium itself, which is above, uh, has foundations. It has these huge concrete walls that support the rest of the stadium yeah. above it. There's only something like nine or ten meters between these foundations. So they're getting together the engineering team and going, "How how big should we make these mirrors?" Well, we know how big they can't be. <laughs> yeah. They've got to fit between these big posts. So yep. up to that, we're fine. Just make it a little bit smaller than that, and we're good. And so they what eight point what eight point four? Yeah, okay. Give so yourself this is a little why bit we of have slack. the yeah. biggest mirrors in the world at eight point four. Not are. because we couldn't make bigger ones, but because we've got a stadium in the way. Hey, look, call me stupid, but I would have thought that a stadium isn't the most stable environment. Like you got people playing sport and shouting and cheering and stomping directly above you. Is that really where you want to be making the world's largest and best precision mirror? Yeah, really? so, well, the foundations are very stable. So remember, this is underneath. So this yeah. is like sub-stadium. So it's not stuff. just under the bleachers. And they, they built this stadium, right, to last. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an incredibly well-built thing. And um, also, there's a huge supply of power 
which yeah. is quite helpful. Makes sense. Right. Makes so sense. lots of utilities on site. So it was a, it was a good choice. And actually, there were two labs originally placed here. Uh, there was one doing things to do with uh, trees and rings and trees. Mm. It was all set. So this guy, Stuart, um, the Stuart Observatory was named after, was quite into quite a lot of different <laughs> pieces of science. He was a renaissance man. Yeah. The um, the ring lab isn't there anymore for, for the trees, but the mirror lab is but the mirrors there. Are. Yeah. So why are we doing this? What's why do we need a giant Magellan telescope? Well, you always need bigger telescopes. Well, Chris. yes, I mean bigger is better. More expensive. I mean, this is, can't be cheap. No, it's definitely not. So we're talking about more than a billion dollars US. Um, exactly how much? Of course, well, we'll see. Yeah, but let's let's say it's in the order of that number of zeros. Yeah, a lot so, of zeros. So I'm kind of hoping then that that what you're going to get out of this telescope is some pretty good observing. So give us a sense for how good this thing's going to be. You don't throw a billion dollars at a telescope unless you think it's going to be really good. Yeah, definitely. So there's two ways we're really pushing forward with telescope technology with the GMT. The first one is pure size. And that what size gives you is resolution. And this is a resolution resolving power is directly proportional to how big uh, your aperture is okay. So if you double the aperture, then you effectively double your ability to resolve objects in okay. the universe. Now, when we're talking about resolving objects, we're talking about the smallest details on the object that we can distinguish. So, you know, a, a, a simple example might be that if you don't have a terribly powerful telescope, you see a blob in the sky. And if you get a more powerful telescope, that actually resolves. Oh, right. That's a binary system. There's actually two things there. There's two stars. We couldn't see that because we didn't have a big enough telescope. Now we do. And hey, look at that. We can resolve the fact that that's two separate things very close together. Or we can resolve features that we couldn't see before. So this thing with its huge diameter of combined mirrorage, is that a word? Um we'll be able to resolve much finer details than anything we've had before. Definitely. And we're looking at something at least 10 times the resolution of Hubble. Is Hubble the best we've got at the moment in Not terms of optical? Quite. No. So there was quite a, an interesting sort of story going on here because um, we started sending telescopes into space with Hubble. Uh, we've got several other um, space telescopes that are observing anything from planets to infrared light um, to uh, ultraviolet telescopes as well. But um, we started to be able to improve ground-based technology so far that we were able to mimic what was going on with the space-based telescopes. So this is the kind of the second part of why GMT is really pushing the boundaries. Okay, so the first part was just sheer size. Can we make one this big? But there's more to it than that. Yeah, basically, can we make telescopes that exist such that the atmosphere, we can basically say, isn't there. Right. And that's the that's the point, isn't it? Because we started sending telescopes into space to get away from the atmosphere because the atmosphere is a pain, right? It's a, it's a giant pain. And exactly why? I mean, you know, let's just focus on optical for a moment. What is it about the atmosphere? It's the whole stars twinkle thing. It moves. Isn't it? The atmosphere moves, which yeah. is just really annoying. So yeah, we get twinkle, twinkle, little star, right? Yeah. These are this is because you have parcels of air which are moving around in the atmosphere. They're also at different temperatures and pressures. So when you put light through it, it sort of bends around, it wiggles and wobbles. And by the time it reaches your telescope, your star is dancing all over the place. Yeah, which when you're looking at, looking at it just with your naked eye up into the night sky, you see that as a twinkle. When you go up into space, 
turns out, apparently, I haven't been, but I have it on good authority, that um, stars don't twinkle. They're just little dots in the in the sky, which is which is one thing. But you can see the effects of the atmosphere in, in other ways as well. Like when you're driving along a road on a really hot day, which doesn't happen so much in this country, but in Australia or perhaps New Zealand, where we are from, um, driving along a road and it, the heat above the road causes mirages and things like that. It looks like there's, you know, water ahead of you on the road. And it's just the light from the sky coming down and bending off the warmer air above the road. That kind of effect going on in, in, the, uh, in the atmosphere above your telescope means, as you say, you're trying to look at this thing in the sky, a star or a galaxy or whatever it is, and it's moving around all over the shop, not twinkling, but just shifting. That, and that means you can't get a decent view of it. Yeah, it's blurry, basically. Right. Yeah. So we've um, developed huge amounts of technology to start to cope with all this and to start with cope with all the other effects that we have on Earth that we don't necessarily have to worry about when we're in space. So we have two classes of uh, um, optical technology that we use. The first is active optics. Active optics, okay. And the second is adaptive optics. Right. So there's no confusioning, confusioning? No confusion there. So Let's start with the first one then, active okay. optics. So active optics, uh, the good way to remember what the difference between the two is one is fast and one is ultra-fast correction. <laughs> right. It's a little bit like the Magellan Telescope by itself is merely big, whereas <laughs> the giant Magellan Telescope is seriously stonkingly big. Okay, so fast and stupidly fast. So let's start with the fast one. That's Active? Active optics. Okay. Yeah. So these are changes that we make um, on the order of once per second. Right. And what changes in what? So we're changing the big primary mirrors, so these big 8.4 metre mirrors. And what we're able to do is move those mirrors around to adapt for changes in uh, temperature as you know the night goes on, the temperature outside changes. Uh, and it also helps us to account for gravity changing as we point the telescope in different directions. Gravity changes? Sorry, well, what? Well, the, the force of gravity on each mirror changes as you point it around. Because imagine if you point your telescope towards the horizon, right. you get quite the forces start to shift around on the mirrors depending on exactly how what so direction you're So what, you, you're, what you're saying is these mirrors are so big that if we move them around, they actually start to bend and and shift up just under their under their own mass yeah and sag a bit yeah yeah okay and so, you can you can adapt for that on the time scale of sort of every second every second you can yeah. adapt to changes in the temperature changes in in the shape of the mirrors due to just their sheer bulk yeah, so you basically sort of, each of those mirrors is cast, it's solid, and then you're able to move each of those uh, seven mirrors just very slightly to shift them around to make sure that they're all still coming to a perfect focus point. Wow. And so that's being monitored. That's the thing that's being monitored constantly is, you know, forget about what we're looking at for a moment. Is everything, is all the light that we're collecting, is it coming down to a really nice, fine focus? If mm -hmm. it's not, start shifting things, yep. which I'm guessing takes an enormous amount of computing power. Yeah, you've got big what they call wavefront sensors. So these are con constantly monitoring the focus of the telescope and uh, using um, basically a similar system that they're gonna that's brand new to to the GMT that they're developing. This works a little bit like LIGO actually. So remember LIGO, we had two laser beams, point them in different directions, bring them back together, and look at the tiny tiny differences between those two laser beams. Right. Yeah, LIGO was the, that's the um, the laser in. Spherometer Gravity Observatory. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. That's the one that detected the gravitational waves. Yes. 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 Okay. Yep. 
Yeah, so in that experiment, you put two lasers down enormously long tracks and then put them back together and see what the difference is, basically, between yeah. those two lasers. And beams. you've got to be accounting for ludicrously small vibrations and changes in, in temperature and, and all sorts of things because the effects you're looking for are stupidly small. So yeah. you've got to get rid of as much noise as humanly possible. Yeah, so it's kind of a similar piece of physics, actually, that you're, you're manipulating. You're using lasers or wavefronts of light to check, are those light, light coming from all the mirrors? Is it always the same? Do you need to shift one of the mirrors back or forth just to make sure that all of those um, waves of light come in at the same rate? Wow. Okay, so you're working at that at the, at the time scale of you know, roughly seconds or every second, and that's fast. Mm -hmm. So that's active, optics and then there's the stupidly fast adaptive adaptive optics yeah so this is working at about a thousand times per second means tiny corrections now instead of um trying to deform these enormous mirrors which are eight meters each and then the whole system together um, instead of that we deform the secondary mirrors so these are the mirrors that um, so you take all your primary mirrors they focus the light towards a secondary mirror which then often in, in the case of the GMT will bounce that light back through a hole in the middle and all your instruments and so on that collect the light are at the back. And you see this on on some small telescopes even don't you? Like yes, there, there are yeah. some telescopes which are just the light comes in and it comes down and it goes to the eyepiece or to the camera or whatever it might be. But you've got others where it's you know got a bit of a larger bore on it typically. Uh, you know, bigger mirror down the bottom, maybe several inches. The light comes up to a smaller secondary mirror, actually at the entranceway or close to the entranceway to that to the telescope, and then bounces back down to its to its final resting place at the end. Yep, yep. It's but, called a Cassegrain focus. Okay. Yep. So you're not adjusting the main mirrors on this one, because I'm guessing that trying to do that a thousand times a second would be really hard. So how big are these smaller mirrors? So much more adjustable. They're a lot smaller and they're much thinner. Right. So you can actually deform them. So there's about 7,000 actuators which are going to sit behind these secondary mirrors and basically bend them and warp them. And uh, the reason why they're doing this is to back correct the effects of the atmosphere. Okay, so in principle, I can understand that. But how, like, question, how the hell do you know what the atmosphere is doing a thousand <laughs> times a second to be able to correct for that? Well, you've got to have some input information to be able to correct for it. What, how, where's do. that come from? So, so in science, we like to have a control. Yes. Right? So we want to have a control in our, um, that we're looking at that doesn't that wouldn't have any intrinsic motion of its own that's only being moved around by the atmosphere. And the best way to create a control star is with a laser. Now, we all know that lasers make everything better, but what's this laser doing? So this is, these are laser guide stars. So basically, we use an enormous um, watt, like five-watt laser, and that creates... That's a lot for a laser. It's a big laser, yeah. 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 And you might have seen pictures of these. Um, they do exist oh, at yeah. other observatories. Yeah, yeah. You've got this sort of observatory, you know, dome or whatever it might be in the background, and then this laser often green yeah shooting up into the sky which i always thought was just for effect <laughs> it just makes it look cool <laughs> it looks like we're trying to zap out all lasers. the aliens yeah, in the universe, yeah. right? but it's not that that's that's a what do you call it a guide laser guide star. laser guide star so how does that work so basically we use a laser to create a um, fake star artificial star in the very very top of the upper atmosphere and then we know that that Light is perfect when it came out of the laser. That's what a laser is. Yep. And so we can, any changes, any wobbles that that particular guide star does, we back correct onto the secondary mirrors and it kind of undoes the effects of the atmosphere. So you're shining a laser and you know what that laser is. You know what that 
should look like if you were looking at it directly with nothing in the way, because you're making the laser, right? You're making the guide star. And then it's what? Bouncing off the upper levels of the atmosphere down into your telescope. And you're comparing what you see with the telescope to what you spat out of the laser in the first place, or what you would expect if there was nothing in the way. And then you're adjusting that on the fly a thousand times a second to make those two match. Yeah. Holy cow. It's crazy. That's off the charts. That's nuts. And that works? It works. And I mean, we have done this on lots of our big, big telescopes. And the results that we've been able to achieve are on the order of being in space. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. I mean, I've heard of this stuff, but wow. I mean, when you get the details of it, it makes you realise just how, how big that is. How long has that idea been around? Oh, it's been around for at least a decade now. Um, so it's still pretty new. Yeah, it's pretty new. And I mean, that been... must have been amazing when it actually worked the first time. Oh. It was just like, I can't believe we're doing this. So I've seen some fantastic um, before and after images from um, particularly Gemini telescopes. And when they installed their laser guide, they took some pictures of um, bullets of Orion, which are these kind of... Um, they look like they're, they're tiny little passes of gas that are moving incredibly quickly. And the resolution of the image doesn't really change because the telescope hasn't really changed. But with the laser guide star and all the new technology they put in to back correct the atmosphere, it's like having the fog sort of, you know, or defocused image come into focus in wow. front of your eyes. It's just wow. fantastic. That is That is absolutely extraordinary. And I guess... I mean, this is the whole point, isn't it? That, that putting telescopes into space was a great idea because the atmosphere is a real pain in the neck. And so let's build Hubble and a bunch of others and send them up into space. But of course, sending stuff into space, particularly big, heavy things, is really expensive and really hard and prone to failure. And, you know, as we have found out, if something goes wrong in Hubble, it's not like you can just quickly send up another one. And it's not like you can easily get to it and just, you know, tighten the screws. That's really difficult to get into space in the first place and to maintain. So you've got, on the one hand, the benefits of no atmosphere. Fantastic. The downside is, yeah, but that's a real pain in the neck. So you've lost a pain in the neck and you've gained a whole new one. Yeah. This technique allows you to do it on the ground where a human being can literally get in there and tighten up the bolts if needed. But you can adjust for really really well the effects of the atmosphere that was why we were putting stuff into space in the first place exactly and wow. we will still need to put things in space i mean let's not forget that we've got the james webb coming up as well yeah yeah so particularly in uh, infrared wave bands uh, there's a lot of absorption that happens in the atmosphere depending on exactly what wavelength you want to look at uh, so james webb is going to be looking at those areas um, that we can't see from the ground right. so it becomes complementary yeah some ways. so you've got all these different frequencies of, of light, wavelengths of light. The optical can get through the atmosphere pretty well, which is why we, we call it optical. We can see that bit. And it comes through quite happily. And so build, building an optical telescope with all this stuff works really well. But there's a, there's only so much you can do at other wavelengths. And if, if your wavelengths get trapped or get absorbed or scattered by the atmosphere, you can't adjust for that. You can't make more light from the object you're looking at. And so that stuff still needs to go into space. Definitely, yep. Cool. So what's the ultimate end point then the giant magellan telescope is going to have what did you say something like 10 times the resolution of, of hubble? hubble yeah so what's that going to allow us to do 
What does that get for us? Well, I, I thought, okay, let's dig in and look at the science cases because, I mean, the, the science cases for these instruments are fantastic. They, well, they so, have to be because you're spending a billion on it, they right? They have to be, so. of course, yeah. But they're so visionary and they're so exciting to read. And so I thought, okay, let's, let's go and get the, the All book. right, sell it to me. I've got, a, I've got a billion and I could spend it on that or I could spend it on something else. Tell me why I should spend it on this. Well, so GMT produced this book. It is called The Science Book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the latest edition is 2018. I thought, oh, yeah, I'll flick through the science book and just get some ideas of what their key uh, scientific um, key goals are. The science book, it's 208 pages long. Okay, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of science in that. And I read a bit of it. Mm-hmm. No, I won't lie, I didn't read the whole thing. <laughs> is it a page turner, Emily? <laughs> it is, of... Well, no, it actually is very, it's very well written. It's very exciting. It's got some lovely pictures in it as well. But um, I thought, I started reading the first bit, which is can about... You, can you download this? Is it, you can, is it a... yeah. Oh, we'll put a link. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, I've read the, some bits weekend. about the exoplanet science that they were going to be doing. So looking at detections of exoplanets using the radial velocity method. So this is looking at the color change of stars and by the fact that those the stars are changing color means that they're changing position in the sky, wobbling to and fro away from us and towards us. And that's an indicator of an exoplanet being Right, there. right. So this is not looking for the, the brightening and dimming of a star as a planet goes in front of it and then around behind it. This is the fact that when a planet goes around the star, the star's actually in orbit as well, that the planet and the star are in orbit around their common centre. And typically, the star's much bigger than the planet, so it's just doing a little bit of a wobble around a a centre of mass point, probably somewhere inside the star. But it is doing a little wobble, which means sometimes it's just slightly wobbling towards you and sometimes slightly wobbling away, and you can detect that. You can detect that, yeah, the colour change of the star. So um, at the moment, we are getting reasonable detections with some of the best spectrographs in the world. Um, HARPS is one of them, for example. Um, We're getting down to meter per second so this is the cha- the velocity of the star that we're measuring here that sounds impressive yeah we can measure the star moving the surface of the star moving at uh, about a meter per second that's pretty good the instrument they're building for the gmt yeah. is expected to be at least as good as 10 centimeters per second wow. maybe one centimeter per second wow okay so that will be able to detect these tiny wobbles from presumably much smaller or more distant planets? Is that the idea? Um, Well, yeah, smaller things. So things like the Earth have a very, very small effect on the star. So if you want to find an Earth-like planet, then you've got to look for very, very tiny wobbles. Yeah, I mean, the Sun's much bigger than the Earth. And so the Earth's wobble, its orbit, is much, much more impressive than the Sun's wobble from the effect of the Earth. But it is there. And that's the sort of thing that we could detect with this? Yeah, that's what they're looking for in the closest uh, sort of stars. They wow. Can get. So Earth-sized planets causing an, a, a, a sort of down to 10 metres or 1 metre per second wobble. Centimet- centimetres. Sorry, centimetres. Off by a factor of 100 um, in the wobble of the star. That's, wow, okay. That's amazing. All right, I'm hooked already. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get images of the closest planets. So something, so for example, Proxima B, this is the closest star that we have to our sun. We know that there's a planet there Mm -hmm. that was discovered a couple of years ago, Proxima B. We're hoping that we're going to be able to take a picture of that. Of the actual planet. Yeah. Of the thing itself. Of the thing itself. 
We've never done that, have we? We have sort of in some cases. Um, we've been able to so see some of the larger planets that are quite far away from their host stars, some of the things that have disks and therefore have clumps in the disk that we think are, think are planets. Right. So, yeah, we have had some images, um, but we're hoping to get a lot more and a lot more from the nearest stars in the optical directly. Okay. So be, And being able to see that, I mean, on the one hand, it's just, wow, that's another planet. But presumably there's more to it than that, that you would actually be able to infer or directly detect. So what's that made of? Exactly, yeah. So we're looking for biosignatures is right. the other key part of exoplanet You could science. detect the atmosphere. You could de detect what's actually coming off this thing and, and see what's, what's on the surface, what it's made of, what's there. Yeah. So that was fascinating, Reid. And that's just the exoplanet section. Okay, so that's okay. You've already got my billion, but okay. I'm not going to tell you all of science no, because there's far too much in 208 look, pages. Folks at home, go and read it for yourself. It's a cracking read, I'm sure. But let me just tell you the headings because the they're headings. quite exciting. Yeah. Okay, so we're also going to learn about the birth of stars, mm -hmm. the death of stars, mm -hmm. galaxies, their growth, their evolution, the Milky Way, our closest neighbours, gas, and how gas works in galaxies, cosmology, the dark universe. The first light of the universe and the reionization epoch, which I think we've mentioned on an earlier episode as well. So basically everything from planets to the entire universe from beginning to end. Yeah, that's a good summary. <laughs> yeah, and so in that regard, being able to squeeze all of that into 200 plus pages is actually not a bad effort, no, I would have done, thought. they've done well. Yeah, yeah they have, we had a very good editor. Wow. Okay, so which one of those are you most most excited about? Ooh, that's a good question. If you, had to, if you had to pick one and go, that one. I think I'm very excited about spectrograph. I, I'm, I do spectroscopy as my bread and butter science. So which bit is that? Sorry. So this is the 10 centimetres per second, right. one centimetre yep. per second. The precision that you can do. I mean, because this is a technique that I use as well when, in my study for stars. So being Yeah, because you look at stellar wobbles and, and all I sorts do, of stuff. And yeah. so that's, that's the star doing stuff, independent of the planets. That's just the star doing things. Which presumably then this could do as well. Yes. If, it, if it can measure, you know, centimeters per second worth of wobble due to a planet, it can measure that kind of wobble due to anything. Indeed, yeah. Star so we're quakes, looking for works. very, very small pulsations and other sorts of effects, like like even some of the solar-like stuff that we can see would be really, really exciting to measure. So what's beyond that then? You know, there's going to be there's a huge amount of science that we're going to be doing with, with that. But I'm guessing that people aren't sort of sitting on their hands and going, well, that's it. That's astronomy done. That's telescopes done. Oh, of course There's not. always There's bigger. There's always more. So what's my next billion going to be spent on? So if you look back over the history of building telescopes, it looks like we can double the size of a telescope about every 30 years. So that's, that's astronomy's Moore's law. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Uh, which is very exciting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the 30 years is to another double size. In fact, we've already started planning for some bigger um, telescopes than even the GMT. So you're saying in a couple of decades we'll have an optical telescope, which is basically, what, 100 metres in diameter? <laughs> well, funnily enough, they did start out with um, an idea for a telescope, which was 100 metres in really? size. Really? I was joking, but it, you're, it, not, well, you're not kidding. Well, yeah, okay, it, <laughs> there, and then it sort of turned into a couple of projects, one of which was cancelled, called the Overwhelmingly Large <laughs> Telescope. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, that one just didn't that's get, a shame because because and... that's such a good name. Owl, yeah, yeah. it's really really mm. nice. But we do have two other awful acronyms for telescopes. Yeah, um, we have the um, EELT. Mm-hmm. It was just the ELT, but now it's the EELT. Do you want to have a go at what that one might the be? The Extraordinarily Emphatically Large Telescope. <laughs> You're pretty close. Yeah. It was originally the um, Extremely Large Telescope. Yeah, the ELT. And, and, and the Europeans got on board, and it's the European Extremely Large Telescope. Okay. So we've, yeah, we've got Giant, now we've got Extremely Large. We've abandoned Overwhelmingly Large. Are we getting close to Terrifyingly Large? Are we... Well, you could use that in the next one. So the next one's the 30-metre um, telescope. Yeah. TMT. So Sorry, the, the EEMT is how big? Uh, so that one's 40 metres. And what's the what's the deal with that? Uh, so we're going to build that in the Atacama Desert. So it's a slightly, it's in Chile as well, but different yeah. location. Okay. Um, and 2025, maybe they're looking for first light yeah. for that one. Okay, so that one actually might beat... Might beat the giant Magellan. Yes, so right. both of the both of these two big ones actually um, are using the other way to build big mirrors, which is um, like one meter hexagons. Right. right. What's the What's the deal with Chilean telescopes? Is it just that it's desert, so it's really clear and dry, so you don't have to worry too much about the atmosphere, and it's high up? High up, yeah, right. high and dry. Those yeah. are the two things we really love about Chile. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the other one is TMT thirty meter telescope, which. 30 meters. I was about to ask you what TMT stood for, but you just told me. Yeah. Yep. Uh, That's boring. Hang on. (laughs) Someone needs to talk to their marketing team. It's called the terrifyingly mutinous. (laughs) Terrifyingly majestic. Yeah. Yeah, Yes, we love that. Um, 2027, looking for that one. Right. Uh, So so a whole bunch coming online. In less than a decade, yeah. we hope. All and that one's well. Northern Hemisphere as well, which is really interesting. So we can you know, look at different parts of the sky, of course. Oh, of course, because Chile's Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, yeah. So Mauna so, Kea is the proposed site for that which one. Which is Hawaii. Hawaii. Yeah. Okay. So, and that's 30 meters. Yes. So we're, we're getting a bunch which are all roughly-ish to within a few meters of the same size. Because yep. the, the, the GMT is, what did you say, 24? 24.5. Yeah. And the EEMT is ELT. Yep, forty meters. The EELT is forty, and then the boringly named thirty meter telescope is thirty meters. So, but okay, so they're going to be complementary in the sense that they're in different hemispheres, Mm -hmm. and they're all very big. So, in about ten years' time, like you've got ten years to really get a ramp. Up onto onto some amazing new astronomy here. It's going to be a fun time. Yeah, well, they're already predicting that we're going to the demand is going to outweigh supply by these telescopes by factors of maybe a hundred. You'll have astronomers lining up around the block. Yeah, because if you think each of these telescopes is only going to have maybe something like 300, 320 nights per year available, um, the remainder you get a little bit of bad weather, uh, not too much in these places, but yeah. a little bit. That's the point. Um, That's you also why have Chile. A, yeah, quite a lot of downtime for mechanical. Stuff. Yeah servicing etc well particularly as i mean these these are pushing the boundaries so much there's going to be stuff you know yes. there's going to be things oh we didn't think of that or that didn't work as well as we thought or we've got to adjust or whatever it is so these are going to be some of the most competitive telescopes that you can get time on in wow. the world wow so even with, with we've ever had even with three of them coming online within you know a couple of years of each other there's still going to be a queue around the block of astronomers going are you done you yeah. done yet? Well, just just think about all the stuff we're going to learn in the next few years before then. I mean, we've got Tess up there now. Yep. We've got James Webb that's going to fly very soon. I really gonna... hope. <laughs> we... Come on, James Webb. We've got so much that's going to come that we're going to just be like, oh, I just wish I had a 30-meter telescope to go look at that with. Funny you should mention, we've got three of them coming online around about now. <laughs> 
That brings us to the end of this overwhelmingly large podcast edition. Um, look, Emily, I don't know. I don't really know where we go from there. I mean, we just talked about some of the biggest astronomical observing things on the on the on the planet. I'm, I'm going to have to take a little bit of time to just process all of that. While I'm doing that, I guess people could write in with their questions and comments, couldn't they? How yes. would they do that? They would shout us out on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So we're at Suzuki Pod, and you can write your few characters to us, or you can write us longer messages through our website. That is right, syzygy.fm. And we're on the other social medias as well. You know, we're out there on, on Facebook. You can find us as, uh, as SyzygyPod on Facebook. In fact, pretty much anywhere you find us out there on the on the interwebs, we are at SyzygyPod. If yes. that's what you search for, yep. you'll probably find us. And what can you do? You can send us your questions. You can send us your comments. Tell us what you think. The other way you can tell us what you think is by leaving us a review. We'd love that. A couple of stars, five ideally. If five is the maximum, give us that and it helps us to rise up through the noise. So go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from and, uh, and tell the world how much you enjoy this little podcast. But otherwise, I'm just going to go and process all of this information that I've got about overwhelmingly large mirrors doing crazy things. And... Um, Emily's just going to hoot to herself for a while. And we will be back again with some more astronomical goodness in about a week. So we'll catch you then. See you later. Bye-bye. Looking out of the window of Emily's office and there is an enormous... It's the the giant Magellan lawnmower going past our window. (laughs) So we're just going to wait for a minute. I mean, to be fair, he does look like he's having a good time. Yeah, but the grass didn't look that long.